There we go. We're in John 18. I'm going to give you the uh, little backstory just to give you, bring you up to date if you haven't been here, um, or even if you have, just to remind you where we've been. We're in chapter 18. We are hours away from the crucifixion. These are um, the trials of Jesus have begun. This is the trials are part of the passion what we call the passion. It's not just the cross, not just the resurrection, not just the whipping and the beating, even the trials are part of his passion. As we study this, I want you to notice that he, Jesus, uh, is going through all of this because of his love for you and me. And that in a sense, somebody else is on trial. We'll get to that in a little while. So we talked last week about chapter 18. He's already been betrayed by Judas and arrested, knocked down a whole army of guys. Remember, we talked about that by saying, I am. Pretty amazing. Um, we talked about the connection between Genesis 3 and Gethsemane. We, we won't go through that again, but um, let's see. Peter has cut off the ear of the high servants, uh, the, the high priest's servant, Malchus. This is the only gospel where we learn it was Peter and the name Malchus. That's going to come into play a little bit later on, because Peter's a little worried about that. Jesus, we, Luke tells us, heals the ear, which sort of negates the whole crime, which, if you're honest, coming at somebody with a knife could be construed as attempted murder. We'll come back to that later. Now, um, they've arrested him, and they've brought Jesus to Annas, who is the ex high priest, the power behind the throne, so to speak. The current high priest is Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest until around 16 AD when the Romans, because he was crooked, got rid of him. After that, by the way, you're supposed to be high priest for life in the Jewish religion, but he was crooked. They got rid of him. So he appointed his son and then another of his sons and another and another and another until five of his sons each got a chance at being high priest. And for one reason or another, they, it didn't work out. So now this is Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who's high priest, but really he's the power behind the throne. Um, let's see, do we want to do that now? Jesus ends up with three religious trials and four secular or civil trials. Um, before Annas, the, the ex-high priest, before Caiaphas, the high priest, before the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling body of Israel. That's the religious trials. Then there's four civil trials, Pilate, Herod Antipas, Pilate again, and then there's a seventh trial we'll go into today. That's some people don't consider a trial, but I do. Anyway, so I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. <laughs> Who said brr? The heat isn't, wasn't on when we got in here, so it's a little chilly, but that will keep you all awake. If you, if you go and you see your breath, then it's cold, right? Okay, so we left off at verse 17. Um, so they arrested him in verse 12. They bound him, brought him first to Annas. That's what we talked about earlier, verse 13. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, um, the high priest. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. He inadvertently makes this amazing prophecy of Jesus that it's better for the nation, if one man died, then the whole nation perish. He doesn't mean it the way we know it, but when Jesus dies, he can save those of the nation who believe. So 
Simon Peter, verse 15, and another disciple, that's G, uh, John, are following Jesus, verse 15, because this disciple was known to the high priest, that's John, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. He's the only one that goes in. Peter stays outside in verse 16, but John comes back out, who's known to the high priest, and he spoke to the servant girl on duty, and he brought Peter in, sort of got him in, in the door kind of thing. But as he comes in, the servant girl says to Peter, verse 17, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Now you remember from chapter 13, Jesus predicted to confident Peter, I will never deny you. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So if you're keeping score, this is number one. She uh, recognizes that John is a disciple of Jesus, Peter should have told the truth and not wimped out. He's very brave with a sword. He wimps out in front of a servant girl at the door. The question, the way it's asked, expects a negative answer. You're not one of these man's disciples, verse 17, are you? He replied, I am not. Just sort of matter-of-factly, John tells us he denies Christ. Um, Let's see. In the Gospel of Mark, we get the most information, by the way, about the rooster crowing thing. What Jesus actually says is before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me thrice or three times, Old English. Just wanted to clarify that. Peter's been warned. You would think he's extra careful. I said earlier that the attempted murder charge is in the back of his mind. He did try to stab the guy, missed, cut his ear off. Jesus healed it but it's still a crime. He's behind enemy lines. Jesus is in big trouble. He wonders if he gets a, a recognized if somebody's not going to say, hey, aren't you the guy that, you know, came at Malchus with a knife? So he wimps out and he denies Christ. Verse 18, it was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Another, another gospel tells us it's a charcoal fire. A wood fire gives more heat. A charcoal fire is more of a glow. What, what does that matter, Joe? There's less light and less heat. So what do you have to do? Stand closer together. So Peter's behind enemy lines, really close together with all these other people trying to keep warm in the spring. What'd you say? Kind of like here. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so... Uh, it's cold and they're standing around a fire. Peter's also standing with them, warming himself. Um, you got to appreciate that he's there for Jesus, but he's around the enemy. He doesn't want to stand out by standing out way over there, and he wants to keep warm anyway. So uh, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Peter tells, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus tells Peter um, that he's going to deny him, as he does in John. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus he includes the detail that Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Asked permission. And so he knows Satan's after Peter. Jesus tells Peter, I've prayed for you. When you've repented, implying he is going to fall, he's going to deny Christ three times. When you've repented, comfort your brothers because you're the leader of this group. So, um, and he does, there's denial number one. 
bold with a, so a sword, coward with a servant girl. Pretty amazing. Um, verse 19. Meanwhile, and John does this a lot, goes back and forth between out in the courtyard where Peter is, back in the trials of Jesus. Verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest, that's Caiaphas, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Okay. In a second, I'm going to go through, uh, well, we could do it now, really, a, a list of why the trials of Jesus are illegal. And it, it's astounding how many things about these trials are illegal in the Jewish law. In some cases, even Jew, illegal in the Roman law. So um, let's do that right away, and then we'll, we'll move on. Okay, the Supreme Court of Israel when there's a trial like this, the defendant, Jesus, is entitled to at least three things. Number one, a public trial. This is not public. It's private, right? Um, an opportunity for defense, there's none given. There's no witnesses. Jesus doesn't get to call Peter, James, John, whoever. He could call if they had time, right? Let's get Lazarus in here. Tell your story, Lazarus, right? Can you imagine? No witnesses. Um, you can't have a conviction unless you have two or three witnesses who all agree precisely and testify separately. So I can't hear Ken testify and go, yeah, what he said and just repeat it. He testifies some without me there and vice versa. And the rule in Israel was if you testified about someone in a capital offense like this, the death penalty, and they were found guilty. Um, and you lied in your testimony, you would die. You get the death penalty. They took really seriously the, the uh, telling the truth in a trial. False witnesses got the same penalty as the criminal. Have to have two or three witnesses to agree exactly. They never get that, you know, in all the trials. Um, no court could be held at night or even in the late afternoon for fear that you would rush it. Come on, it's almost five o'clock. Let's get home to our families. Let's get the verdict going. You can't start a trial in the late afternoon, let alone no trials in the evening. The trial had to be in the judgment hall, a special place. They don't do that either. Um, the rule was also, if you have a guilty verdict, you cannot... Um, uh, execute the, the defendant the same day. You got to have a day to think about it. Um, uh, you can have no trial on a feast day. It's Passover time. So they're breaking all these rules. All the votes had to be carefully counted. They never did that. No one could incriminate themselves by testifying against themselves. You would get other witnesses. This guy, Caiaphas, is in verse 19 asking him, tell us about your teaching. You think they're interested because they want to believe? No, they are hoping he'll incriminate himself in some way, uh, which is also illegal. So the trials are illegal eight ways from Sunday, as they say. Anyway, uh, we already talked about that. You can't execute anybody on a feast day. They execute him on Passover. Um, so he's asking him about uh, from the other Gospels, we learn they want to know about the size of his following and what he's teaching. So that's verse 19. He's questioning Jesus, the defendant, about his disciples. How many do you have? What's the nature of your teaching? So here's Jesus's answer, verse 20. I have spoken openly 
to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. What he's actually doing here is acting as his own um, defending attorney, defense attorney saying, what you're doing is illegal. I'm not supposed to testify. Go round up people that have heard me preach. He's saying, I wasn't uh, starting a revolution in some quiet back corner. I preached very publicly in the temple, which is amazing, by the way, that they didn't stop him. He preached in synagogues as he traveled around, very public ministry. He's not saying that he never taught the disciples privately, because he did, right? He explained parables and stuff. But generally, he taught very openly and very publicly. That's what he's saying. What he's saying is totally true. I've spoken openly to the, this is interesting, world. You say, well, this is a guy that preached in a very small area on the map. New, uh, the size of Israel is the same as New Jersey, if you look on a map. It's not very big. He didn't even cover all of Israel, let alone the world. But his teachings through the apostles, through the internet, through recordings, through the Bible, for sure, translated into so many languages, has gone all over the world, hasn't it? I taught openly to the world, he said. I've always taught publicly where the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. So he says in verse 21, why question me? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Response, verse 22, this is also illegal. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? Now, we can't hear the tone of voice of Jesus, but I doubt it was um, disrespectful or he was raising his voice. He probably just said, look, I, I taught openly, publicly, ask my followers. But the guy doesn't miss the chance to whack Jesus in the face. The word in Greek is for an open-handed, hard slap kind of a thing. Um, so he slaps him in the face. Is this you answer the, the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? Verse 23, Jesus. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Now, you may know if you've been in this Bible study for any length of time, whenever there's a question in the Bible, I always like to answer it or at least take a stab at answering this. Um, let's go back to 22. Is this the way you answer the high priest? Yes, with the truth. Isn't that what you want? That's the answer, right? In this case, Jesus says, if I testified, to, if I said something wrong, you testify. He puts the guy on, on the stand. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Why did he strike him? And the answer is because unsaved humanity will always hate God. They may cloak it in indifference. I could care less about Jesus, Bible, God, salvation. But deep down, there's a hatred for God and for Jesus. You're going to see it in the seventh trial as it comes up later tonight. So why did you strike me? Because he's part of the unsaved world, right? Uh, and there's a hatred for God, a rejection of God. Verse 24, then Annas, 
sent him bound, sorry, to Caiaphas. This trial was the Annas one, I apologize, not Caiaphas. So this is Annas, the older gentleman that used to be high priest. And he, this is sort of an informal inquiry. Like I said, illegal. Now he's going to send him to the official high priest, which is his son-in-law, Caiaphas. The goal here was get the charge because they've arrested him. There's no, you're under arrest for, there's no charge. This preliminary hearing was to get a charge together and they never did. So he sends him on. You're going to see this happen. People send Jesus on constantly in these trials. Um, so Anna sends him bound like a prisoner to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25. Meanwhile, outside in the courtyard at the fire, remember, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Again, in Greek, the, the question expects a negative answer. You're not one of his, are you? He denied it saying, I am not. Denial number two, in case you're keeping score. Um, pretty amazing. What you see is John is an expert storyteller, or more likely the Holy Spirit is, and he's giving you two stories going on simultaneously and contrasting Jesus, who never backs down from the truth and says, this is what I taught. I taught openly. I'm not denying anything. And Peter, who's wimping out and denying everything. One is absolutely confident because he's God. The other one is absolutely confident and he shouldn't be, which is Peter. Verse 26, one of the high priest's servants, remember Malchus was a high priest servant, the one that Peter cut his ear off. This is a different guy, but he knows Malchus. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Now, notice the question is different. Are you, aren't you, one, you're not one of his followers, are you? You're not one of his followers. This time it's, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Implying what? If you're with him when we came to arrest him and you were in the garden, you're one of his, you liar. But there's more going on because this guy's saying, didn't I see you? Meaning he's an eyewitness and might've seen the knife probably did see the knife incident and the arrest. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Verse 27, again, Peter denied it. John gives you the very short version. He wants to keep our focus on Jesus. But in the other gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, at least two of them, Peter swears with oaths. It's the most vehement denial. Swears and gives oaths that he's telling the truth. Again, Peter denied it. Verse 27, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Coincidence? What did Jesus say? Three times, right? There it is. And Peter is worried about the charge of attempted murder, so he denies it a third time, and there's the rooster, and he goes, oh. John leaves out the fact that Peter weeps bitterly after this, right? He is completely destroyed. He is so, so um, sorry for what he's done, he's brought very, very low, which is why God can use him hereafter. But until this point, he's Mr. Confident, and he shouldn't be. Um, let's see, I'm just reading notes here. Um, 
Yeah. The, in the parallel account, the guy that speaks to him calls Peter in this, these two verses, he calls him a Galilean because Galilee was sort of living out in the hicks you know, Hickland, way out in the country, backward people, and maybe they had an accent of some kind or another. And yeah, <laughs> David's, David's saying, maybe they had a few mission teeth or two or three or four. And, and so he, aren't you a Galilean? Because his accent gives him away. It says in a, one of the parallel um, gospels. And Peter, of course, tries to hide his accent and says, that ain't me. I ain't from Galilee. And it's like saying, aren't you from the South or something? Anyway, um, so there is no charge so far on Jesus, but the charge on Peter is he denies him. In the gospel of Matthew and Mark, a weird thing happens that John doesn't bother with. And if you've seen like Jesus of Nazareth, remember the movie? You ever see it? Anybody see it? Six hours, something like that. Um, pretty good. No, no Jesus movie is perfect, but it's pretty well done. In Jesus of Nazareth, they show this, and that is that Peter can see Jesus from far away and might have seen the slap and thought, oh, no, things are going to get heavy here. But when Peter the third time says, I don't know him, Jesus turns and looks right at him. That stare and they lock eyes and he, he knows that he knows he may not have heard the words but jesus knows he predicted it and that's part of why he weeps bitterly pretty amazing thing um yeah and and his tears john leaves all that out as well okay so peter has failed as we all do jesus in chapter 21 is going to re reinstate him and restore him and forgive him in three stages, just like Peter denied him three times later on in the story. We'll see that next year. Um, let's keep rolling. Verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Okay, pause. What's left out here is John skips um, a of uh, a, a more official trial with the Jews before the Sanhedrin. Um, in any case, now we start the political or the civil trials. So they're going to take him from the religious trial, Caiaphas. By the way, this trial was held in his house, totally illegal, uh, Caiaphas's house. It's thought that Annas and Caiaphas shared a pretty palatial estate kind of thing. Um, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Who's that class? Pontius Pilate. Um, by now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Caiaphas has failed. Okay. They were supposed to get a charge together. This is his crime. They got nothing. So they're going to bring him to the Roman governor. The reason is because the Jews lost the right to capital punishment in 9 AD. Okay. Uh, overtaken by the Romans more officially then, and they took that away from them, which they had had. The way that Jews killed a criminal was with stoning. 
in which you throw the person down and basically stone them till they die, crush them with large stones. You got the picture? But the Bible predicts Old Testament, and Jesus said it in John 3, that the Son of Man will be lifted up, just like the snake in the wilderness in the Old Testament in Judaism. Um, it was a picture of Jesus. So he's got to be crucified. Do the Jews know this? No. Do the Romans know this? No. Does God? Yes. Is that the way it's going to happen? Absolutely. So that's why they're bringing him to Rome, they, to the Roman governor, which is Pontius Pilate. He is a complete scoundrel, phony, evil guy. History writes bad stuff about him. He married, I believe it's the, the daughter of Caesar. That's how he got this position. He has had complaints against him all the way to Rome from the Jews who hate him and resent him being there. He, the only reason he's in power is he married into the position, as I said. Um, after this whole incident, I'll probably forget to tell you, so I'll tell you now. A few years after this, they kick him out of that office and he hangs himself, Pontius Pilate. That's how he dies. So they're bringing him to him um, to try to get the charge um, solidified and get him crucified. So the trial that's left out is in Matthew 26, where the Jews cross-examine Jesus. Again, it's illegal, but at least it's at 6 a.m. during the day. In that trial, we're not turning to Matthew, but it would take too long. They ask him a bunch of questions, okay? And they accuse him of all kinds of things that aren't true. We heard, we we heard he said he was going to destroy the temple. Remember that from John 2? He means the temple of his body. Uh, we heard that he is um, stirring up the people and telling them not to pay taxes. There's all kinds of charges that aren't true. But at the end of that trial before the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of Israel, sort of like the Supreme Court and the Senate rolled into one, the high priest stands up and says, I adjure you by the living God. In other words, I'm putting you under oath. Are you the, the Messiah, the son of God? And he says, because he's telling the truth, I am. And he goes on to say, and you will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great glory. You know, he's going to bring wrath on Israel and what have you. That causes the high priest to tear his garment, which is a symbol of extreme disgust at what he heard. And at that point, they say, the Sanhedrin, what more witnesses, what more evidence do we need? He's guilty of blasphemy. So that's the real charge, blasphemy. What's blasphemy? Old Testament. To blaspheme God is to say someone else is God. I'm God. He's God, which is not true. Or to say something about God that is not true or totally disrespectful. He claims to be the living God. Is he? He is. But they consider that blasphemy. Their minds are already made up. If you've read the Gospel of John, five, ten chapters ago, they made up their minds, we got to kill this guy. So there's, the trial is just kind of a sham. So um, he is being sent to um, the Roman governor on the charge of blasphemy. But the Jewish leaders are not stupid. They know a Roman governor, really he's a procurator. It's kind of a fancy type. He's not really a governor, just that small area. Um, 
Pilate is there because of the festival. What festival? Passover. He's not a Jew, but he's usually in Caesarea Philippi, um, which is his headquarters. But there's so many Jews convening on Jerusalem as the leader. He has to be there to make a good show, shake a few hands, kiss a few babies, and make sure they, he brings a bunch of troops with him in case there's a riot or something like that. So they know, the Jews know, Pilate's not going to care. This guy said he was God. He's going to say, so what? He's not going to care. So they've got to find another way to get him on that cross. Verse 28, they take him from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. Now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they didn't enter the palace because they want to be able to eat Passover. Translation, for a Jew, you can't enter the home of a Gentile. If you do, you're unclean. A Gentile is a non-Jew. Why are you unclean? Because Gentiles are unclean, A. B, because they might have yeast in their house. And yeast, leaven, is a symbol of sin for the Jews. And you got to have all the yeast out. Three, they wouldn't eat kosher food. If a Jew went into the home of a Gentile, then he couldn't, he was considered unclean. There's a whole ceremony to get clean again, but now you're out. You can't celebrate Passover. You're an outcast. So they're so careful about the letter of the law while they're planning the murder of an innocent guy who it turns out is their creator and their Messiah. Pretty amazing. That's why they don't want to go in. So the scene at this palace, if you can picture a big palace, fancy palace, where Pilate is staying is... Jesus is going to go in and talk to Pilate, more like an interview, and then Pilate's got to come out and talk to the Jews in the courtyard or in the front yard because they won't go in. I just wanted to give you that background. Okay, verse 29. So Pilate, that's why it says Pilate came out to them, right? They won't go into his house. And he asks a very good question. What are the charges? What charges are you bringing against this man? It's the first thing in a trial, right? You, you got to determine what is he charged with? What did he do? This is verse 30 is makes me laugh every time I read it. What are the charges? Verse 30. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. What? What are the charges? They're saying, well, would we bother with this if he wasn't a criminal? Yeah, that wasn't my question. What? are the charges. They're saying, look, just rubber stamp our thing. We thought you were going to help us out here. The reason they thought he was going to help them out is he did let some Roman troops go with the Jewish temple police and the priests to go arrest him. They had Romans and Gentiles there, uh, Romans and, sorry, and Jews there. So Pilate says, what's the charge? They say, we don't need a charge, just rubber, rubber stamp it. We wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't a criminal. So the charge is he's a criminal. What does that mean? Committed a crime. What crime? He's a criminal. It's kind of silly. Verse 31, Pilate said, this is interesting, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Okay. He's giving them an opening. You guys, you got my approval. Go ahead. Have your little trial. Call witnesses. You deal with it. They answer, but we have no right to execute anyone. This is interesting. Um, in 9 AD, 
as I mentioned earlier, but Jews lost the right to capital punishment. Okay, you say, why is that a big deal? Because in Genesis 49, I think it's verse 10, there's a verse that says about Israel, the scepter, okay, a scepter is what a king holds. So it means self-rule, but it also means self-government to the point of being able to have our own capital punishment, our own trials. The Old Testament predicts, listen, that the scepter, that ability to govern yourselves and have your own um, capital punishment will not depart from Judah, which is the tribe David's from, which is the tribe Jesus is from. It will not depart until the one to whom it is due or the word Shiloh comes. Translation, Genesis 49 says, the scepter, the right to have capital punishment and self-government won't depart from Judah until Messiah has showed up. In 9 AD, the Romans took it away and the Jews are on record um, lamenting this in their writings that the scepter did pass from Judah, no Messiah. God has abandoned Israel or God has broken his promise. What's weird is the most scholars think Jesus was born in 4 BC. Okay. If you count from 4 BC to 9 AD, that's 13 years. Minus the year zero, there's no year zero. You go from 1 BC to 1 AD, means Jesus has been on the earth. The Messiah did come. So it's okay that the scepter passed because Messiah is there. He hasn't made himself known yet, but he did. Because at 12, what did he do? Do you remember? He went to the temple and confounded the, high, the priests and the Pharisees with all his questions and answering their questions. He knew their theology better than they did. So the scepter did depart from them. So they say, he says, go ahead and you guys try him. And they said, we don't have the right to execute. Notice they don't want him to go to jail. There's no jail. We want to kill him. Verse 32, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Translation, if Pilate had said, you guys go ahead and judge him, and they said, yay, this is what we've been waiting for, and they judged him, how would they have killed him? stoned him. They wouldn't have crucified him. Jews never crucified anybody. Had they stoned him, the scripture would have been wrong because the scripture says he's lifted up. He's lifted up on a tree that twice in the Old Testament, we're going to look at it later. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, it says they've pierced my hands and my feet. Um, and also Zechariah 12, 10 talks about the one that they have, the Jews have pierced. There's no piercing in stoning. So John wants you to know this all is happening because God predicted it a certain way, and it's exactly the way it's got to go down. So um, yeah, I gave you all those charges. Um, Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy, as we said. Um, here's the quote from um, the, the, the Talmud, chapter 4. Woe to us, the Jews wrote, for the scepter has departed from Judah and the Messiah has not come. They knew something's wrong. They didn't know that the Messiah was a 12-year-old kid 
um, that had come to the temple and was learning carpentry at the time. Kind of just kind of an interesting thing. Okay. Verse 33. Uh, we already talked about that. Yes. Um, yeah, we covered all that, didn't we? Um, notice, by the way, that Jew and Gentile are both involved in the death of Jesus. The Jews and the Romans are both involved. Verse 33. Um, yeah. Pilate then went back inside. Remember, he's going out to talk to them, back to talk to Jesus. Went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, if you wanted to write this in English and have it be the way it is in Greek, you would write, are you, all caps, italics, bold, you, the king of the Jews? He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't act like a king. He's not acting like a rebel in any way. So they ask him, are you the king of the, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? This is what the, the angle that the Jews are using with Rome is this. There's one king, Caesar. This guy is a threat to your kingdom. He's trying to be a rival king, a revolutionary. So Pilate goes in and says, are you the king of the Jews? And look at Jesus's answer. It's, it seems strange, but it's not. Verse 34, is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? He wants to know, is this a sincere question? Because what is the answer? Is he the king of the Jews? He is, right? The rightful king through David. But he wants to know, is the heart of your question, the motivation of your question, are you asking if I'm king of the Jews because somebody else has been witnessing to you about that Jesus guy and you're really interested, or are you just trying to find a charge to nail me with Rome? So that's what he asks. Did others talk to you about me or is this your own idea? Pilate, no patience with this. Am I a Jew? He's angry, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. In other words, if you're the king of the Jews, you're not doing very well. Those guys are all Jewish and they handed you over to me. Am I a Jew? What is it? you have done, or literally it's what have you done? So before we get to the, what have you done, which is what have you done, which is a great thing. Verse 35, he says, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. Go to John, go back into the gospel of John to chapter one, just briefly. I want you to see something. Remember what Pilate just said, your own people handed you over to me. Um, let's see, verse 10, John 1, talking about Christ. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now, that's the world. What about the Jews? Look at verse 11, same chapter. He came to that which was his own, meaning the Jews, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, he gave the right. It goes on from there. Um, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now go back to chapter 18, where we are. 
your own people and chief priests handed me, you over to me. And then he asks the most pregnant question of this whole passage. What have you done? Okay, remember what I said. When there's a question, I like to answer it. Imagine, he doesn't, but imagine if he'd answered that question honestly. What have you done? Well, I lived a sinless life, right? Can you imagine the look on Pilate's face? I've lived a sinless life. I've healed countless sick people. I've given sight to the blind, paralyzed people I've allowed to walk. Uh, I've healed so that they could walk. I walked on water myself, calmed a storm and told the storm, shh, and the storm was quiet. Imagine Pilate would be going, oh, he's crazy. Now I get it, right? He could have said, I've fearlessly uh, battled and confronted corruption, right, with the Pharisees. He could say, I've cast out demons. I defeated, defeated demons. I fed multitudes with almost no food at all. I have raised the dead. I've taught total truth. I've never told a lie ever, right? Pilate's going, too much information, right? What if he said this? I've foretold the future. Oh, and earlier tonight, I knocked over your whole army that you sent to arrest me by saying, I am, right? This is all true. What have you done? Oh, yeah, he could say, um, also, I was baptized by John the Baptist, and God the Father spoke when I was baptized, and the Holy Spirit descended on me in the form of a dove. And a, few, a year ago or so, three of my disciples came with me up on a mountain, and we had a nice chat with Elijah and Moses. Do you remember that? The transfiguration. And then God said that he was well-pleased in me. This is all the answer to the question, what have you done? Oh, yeah, and I created the universe and the, everything in the, in the world. Oh, yeah, I'm going to pay for the sins of the world, rise from the dead, and ascend to heaven. That's the right answer, right? It's pretty ridiculous, but it's true, all of it. So he says, what is it you have done? Jesus doesn't answer that. Verse 36, he says about his kingdom, because the question was, remember, are you king of the Jews? Verse 36, my kingdom, Jesus said, is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from or of another place. He's not saying what it might look like he's saying. It almost sounds like it's strictly a spiritual kingdom. Okay? That's the way we think of it sometimes. Listen, is it a spiritual kingdom? It is. Is that all it is? No. Jesus will return, listen, to planet Earth and rule on the worldly planet called Earth for a thousand years. He will return and reign on the, he has to, because it's predicted in the Old Testament, he'll, he'll reign from the throne of his father, David, who was an earthly king, king of Israel. So he says, my kingdom's not of this world. He means that for now, right now, his kingdom is a spiritual one. I'm not at war with Rome. I'm not a competitor. I'm not here to compete with uh, Caesar. Um, he's saying, it will become an earthly kingdom, but it is spiritual, listen, rule 
the spiritual rule of God over the hearts of men who willingly submit to him and me, Jesus, not me, as Lord and Savior. Um, had the Jews, and this is not what happened, so it's all speculation, but had the Jews, when he showed up um, around 27 AD, had the Jews received him as their Savior, okay, then the kingdom would have begun on earth right then. But his plan was to save Gentiles and Jews. For that, the Jews had to reject him, which they did of their own free will. So Jesus um, explains that his kingdom's not of this world. The evidence is his servants would fight to prevent his arrest, and his servants, the 11 disciples, every one of them wimped out and ran away. Remember? You'll all be scattered. The sheep will be scattered when they grab the shepherd, Old Testament. So he continues, um, but now my kingdom is from or of another place, meaning it's the kingdom of heaven, spiritual, come to earth, right? God with us. Verse 37. Oh, by the way, earthly kingdoms, that's what he's really asking. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you a competing king to Caesar, to Rome? Earthly kingdoms, people generally come into power through force. They take over land A, B, and C, and we institute a government there. We're ruling over you people now. That's how Rome did it. Spread. That's how the British Empire did it. You go through all the empires of the world, which, by the way, have come and gone and come and gone. Rome, the Roman Empire, is that still going on today? No. Will it come back? We'll see. But all the empires of the world are that way. The Christian empire that comes to the earth comes not by force, listen, but by humble service and by the power of God. We have to remember that, that we are never, Christians are never to be what the Muslims do and are, which is forceful. And they, there's a sort of a Muslim uh, creed, which is um, our Sherry and my son studied in uh, studied Arabic in Egypt, studied that culture uh, a, a lot, and he read the whole Quran in Arabic. And I said, "Is it true that they want to take over the world?" Yes. And what they say is, take over a place and make them at least submit. They don't have to become Muslims; just submit but better if they do. No other religion can be allowed. It's force. Christianity is never that way. And we have to remember that the way we treat people, that we're not here for force, but sacrifice, humility, righteousness, and all of that. We have to serve that same way. The world, how many know what humanism is? Have you heard that term before? Humanism and the world philosophy is with political and social solutions we can change people, change society. Christianity says, if you can change people one at a time from inside, you can change whole societies, whole nations. It's just the opposite. Through, you hear me pray for it every week, don't you? Revival, God's spirit moving, bringing people to Christ that don't know him. So his kingdom's not of this world. If it were, his servants would fight, and they didn't 
at one point, Jesus says to Peter, do you remember this? All who live by the sword will die by the sword. That's the worldly way of government. He also says, don't you know, I could call down 10,000 angels. Remember all that? That's his army. That's not the way he's going to bless the world. So my kingdom's not of this world. My servants would fight if they were. Now my kingdom is from another place. Verse 37, Pilate says, ah, we're getting somewhere. But he's really being sarcastic. You are a king then. There's no punctuation in the Greek, so we don't know if you're a king then. I don't think so. I think it's, ah, you are a king. He's kind of laughing because this guy's, you know, chained up kind of thing, handcuffed, right? You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you have said so, or you say that I am a king. That's an affirmative answer. Yes, you've said it, in other words. In fact, now Jesus is going to give more information. In fact, the reason I was born, oh, we got to take our break in a second. The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Let's take our two-minute break, and then we'll talk about that. We do this so we can stretch our aging bodies. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We'll take our two-minute break. I'm just going to turn my screen off. See you in two minutes. There we go. And we are back from our roughly two-minute break. So we are um, back in the Gospel of John chapter 18. And uh, so let's look at verse 37. Jesus says, you're right. You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Now, what does that mean? It's a little cryptic. Are you noticing? He's not really speaking that clearly to this guy who doesn't care about who he really is. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm here to testify, listen, about the truth. You say, the truth about what? Everything that matters. I'm going to argue that it's more than just John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. He is testifying about himself, that he is the truth. He speaks absolute truth. Every sermon, every word he ever said was true. But he's also here to testify about the truth, listen, about mankind. That there's a huge problem on planet Earth. Everyone is SIN positive right? Sin. We're all guilty. We all cannot save ourselves. We can't stop singing, sinning or singing. We <laughs> Christmas carols. We can't stop sinning and we can't stop. We can't make ourselves acceptable to God. We need a savior. That's the truth about mankind. Do people like to hear that? No. Right? You preach sin and people are going to go to hell if they don't believe. Oh, that's, that's, that's offensive. But if it's true, it's important, isn't it? Would you go to a doctor that never gave you bad news, even when there was bad news? How were the x-rays, doctor? Oh, um, fine. Were they? Uh, yeah, right? Don't you want to know? So he's here to testify about the truth, about mankind, about Satan, about life, the purpose of life, and about himself, and that there's one way to heaven. Um, that rest of that verse, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God, to the Father, except by me. I'm the one door. That's what he says. So he's here to testify about the truth. And then the last thing he says in, in verse 37 is, 
everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So in a way, he's saying, if you don't, Pilate, you're not on the side of truth. Truth is what matters. If you look up truth in the dictionary, it's that which is verifiable, that which is actually correct, the, the reality, right? So does Pilate want the truth? In a way, a lot of the commentators said that this verse is almost an invitation to him. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In other words, do you want to hear more? Do you want to listen to me? And of course, Pilate doesn't. Um, so he's the, he is the truth personified. Everything he says is the truth. So that's what he says. Verse 38, Pilate responds, very cynical, very sarcastic. What is truth? This is not, what is truth? It's not a sincere question. How do I know? Because I know Jesus enough to know. Somebody really is wanting to know, hungry for the truth, Jesus would tell him more. Well, let me sit down and teach you, right? And he'd give him a sermon. What is truth? He said. Pilate replied, um, said Pilate. With this, he, that's Pilate, went out again to the Jews who were in the front yard, remember? Gathered there and said, remember, why did they bring Jesus to Pilate? For a verdict. Here comes the verdict. He goes out to the Jews gathered there and says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Did you hear that? Do you know what that means in our courts? Not, we find the defendant, Jesus of Nazareth, not guilty. No basis for a charge. Pilate says he's not guilty. Before we're done, I'm going to go through the list of people in the Bible that say about Jesus, he's not guilty. There's a bunch. It's pretty amazing. So there's the verdict. And all the Jews went home and Jesus lived happily ever after. Nope. I find no basis for a charge against him, verse 38. Verse 39. But, well, you know, before we get to 39, sorry, let's talk about truth for a second. Um, by the way, the what is truth thing is a way of just dismissing him. Get out of my office. What is truth? I'm done with you. But he goes out and tells the Jews, I don't see any reason why he, this guy is guilty. In between here, what you don't learn in the Gospel of John that you do in Matthew is that Pilate's wife comes into his office while he's talking to Jesus. Can I talk to you for a minute, honey? Yes, yeah, sure. Take him out. What is it, honey? I'm busy. I got this crazy guy from Nazareth. Pilate's wife tells him, have nothing to do with that, listen, just man, that righteous man. I had a dream about him, and I've been troubled about it all day long. God do that? I believe so. Who knows? There's legends about Pilate's wife, it's not in the Bible, that she ends up becoming a Christian. Did she? I don't know. But God spoke to her. This guy's righteous. Your husband's going to deal with it. She comes all the way in to find him to tell him that. That's got to have an effect when your wife husband's going to get an amen. They're pretty wise, our women, most of the time, right? When she says, I got a feeling about this. I had a dream. 
don't have anything to do with this righteous man, that could affect his verdict as well. Um, also, he can see these guys are railroading this dude, right? The Jews are just out for blood. Not guilty. He's innocent. But notice he still goes to the cross, which brings up the question, who's in control here? Who is? Pilate's in control governmentally, okay? You say, yeah, but God's in control. Amen. That's why he went to the cross. But Pilate has the power to say, all of you, get out of my office. He's innocent. Get lost. He wimps out. Pilate's worried about his position with Rome because the Jews have complained about him in the past because he's a little heavy-handed. If they go to him now and say something about him, he might lose his position. He ends up losing it a few years after this, uh, but not yet. So Pilate knows that he's not guilty, but he knows the Jews aren't going to go along his way. He's got to find a way to release Jesus. He tries to release Jesus, listen to this, six times. Um, we won't go over all of them, but you'll see some of them right now. So I find no basis for a charge against him, verse 39, but it is your custom for me to release for you, release to you one prisoner as an act of benevolence and kindness during your little Passover thing that you have going here. So it's, it's a custom that I can release one prisoner. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Now, the Jewish leaders hate that name. If he had said Jesus of Nazareth, it wouldn't have been as tough of a blow, but they still would have said, no, kill him, right? So he says, I can release somebody, and then I'm off the hook. John doesn't record when Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing, as if that absolves him. Pilate's guilty um, for not standing up for truth. He doesn't care about truth. Um, so he says, how about I release the king of the Jews to you? Attempt number one. By the way, maybe it's attempt number two. Attempt number one was you guys go try them yourselves. Attempt number two, we'll call it. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Verse 40, they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken, a, taken part in an uprising. When you put all four gospels together, when you find Barabbas, um, you find a number of things. He was guilty of a bloody insurrection as a terrorist. He was also a thief, a robber, and a murderer. He had killed some Roman guard or official or somebody in a failed attempt at a coup, at a revolution. So because of that, he might have a little bit of a following and be kind of a local hero, a freedom fighter. Barabbas, he fights for us. Why the name Barabbas? Well, it's his name. It's just random. Is it? Chuck Missler used to say that every single name, when you chase it down, has meaning. What does anybody know? Bar Abbas. What's Abba mean? Anybody? Father. Bar, son of. Bar Abbas means son of the father. So he gives them, he has a choice. Do you want the son of the father or do you want the son of the father? 
Jesus. Isn't that interesting? His name is Barabbas, son of the father. That's who they want. Now, Pilate's got a little problem here. This guy is guilty, Barabbas. Jesus is innocent. Barabbas is guilty of murdering someone, probably not a Jew, probably a Roman. Barabbas is a terrorist, and we caught him, and we're going to crucify him. It's very likely that the cross Jesus hangs on was meant for Barabbas. Okay, so they choose Barabbas. Why? Because mankind hates God. Believers weren't yelling this, but they want Barabbas. The weird thing is, who is this Barabbas? It's you. It's me. You say, what? I'm, I'm not guilty of those things. You said he was guilty of an insurrection. Yes, a revolution. Before we were saved, you and I were revolutionaries against our father, God. We were against him. Okay, but I didn't commit any murder. Matthew 5 says, if you hate your brother or say you fool to your brother, it's the same as murdering someone in God's eyes. Because the murder doesn't start with murder. It starts with hatred, and it moves from there. That's what we were. We were Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? A guilty one, me, right? Who deserves to die for what he's done and suffer hell, me. And yet Jesus dies in place of, instead of Barabbas, me, you. So in a sense, you are Barabbas. If anyone in human history could ever say, he, Jesus, died in my place, it's him for real, right? Barabbas goes free because Jesus dies in his place. It's a pretty amazing thing. Um, He's the false son of the father instead of the true son of the father. Some scholars wrote about this passage that the ultimate Barabbas is still in the future, Antichrist, a man who the, the masses of unsaved people will say, that guy, we like that guy. That's the guy we like, son of the father. Matthew 27, verse 20, tells you stuff John doesn't. John wants to give you the facts and get to the crucifixion. Matthew 27, 20 tells you that this was not spontaneous. You want the king of the Jews or you want Barabbas? Barabbas, release Barabbas. What about Jesus? Crucify him. Not spontaneous. Matthew 27, 20 tells you that the Jewish leaders, the priests, were going around in the crowd going, yell for Barabbas, tell him to crucify Jesus. They stirred up the crowd against Jesus. So um, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, not him. We don't want Jesus. Give us Barabbas. Verse 1 of chapter 19 is astounding if you think about it. What's the situation again? Pilate is here to judge a man named Jesus, who Pilate has investigated and found what? Not guilty. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. What? He's innocent. You just said he was innocent. What's going on here? Flogged, by the way, means whipped. Okay. The Jews um, 
had a rule that when they whipped somebody, the rule was 40 lashes. So they would do 39 in case they miscounted. That's all they would do, 39 times with a whip, which, believe me, was bad, okay? The Romans had no such rule. It could be 200 lashes on each side, okay? Why is Pilate doing this? Believe it or not, he's trying to get Jesus sprung from jail. He thinks, if I whip him and he looks all bloody, and all swollen, they, the Jews, might have a little pity for him and might say, all right, that's good enough. We wanted him punished. No crucifixion, but boy, you sure whipped him up. Flesh, you know, lines of the flesh. He's bloody. He's swollen. He's a mess. Okay, that's good enough for us. See you later. Does it work? No. There were three types of flogging that the Romans did. There was one, this kid was climbing on the roof and he wasn't supposed to. Okay, we'll flog him. Very light whipping. Okay. There was the medium one. I have the names here somewhere in my notes, um, which was for more serious crimes. And then there was, um, I should really find the exact names here. Then there was the absolute worst one. It is thought that Jesus gets the middle one now, and eventually before the crucifixion, they would always do the third one. Okay, here they are. Um, three types of flogging. Fustigatio. Very light whipping. People committed minor crimes. They would get fustigatio. That'll teach you a lesson. Now get out of here, you knucklehead. Okay. Number two, flagellatio. Severe flogging serious criminals. That's the one he got now, probably. Verberatio. You can order these in an Italian restaurant, by the way. But anyway, ver verberatio is the most brutal one. The whips, by the way, two people would whip him at once because one guy's got a... And then it's too much time in between. So they would get a rhythm going where... Constant. By the way, not just on the back. They would do the back. Did you just see Passion of the Christ? You're going, oh man. And then they go, they say something and they turn him over. Remember? And they do the other side, the front. They would whip him with these leather whips that had pieces of bone and metal and uh, bones, uh, bones, metal, and um, something else I can't remember that would rip your flesh off first the skin then the muscles and the tendons don't throw up i'll keep going never mind i can see some of the women are going okay sorry the barf bags are in front of your seats if you need them those of you those of you that are home yeah please return the seat to its full and upright position we'll be landing soon okay so they would whip him for the crucifixion they're going to whip him just short of death some people passed out from the whipping he's about to get, but this one is the middle one. He's already a bloody mess. Pilate figures, this is my way out of this. I whip him. Roman justice. Is it justice to do this to an innocent man? Pretty crazy, isn't it? So he takes him and has him flogged. As I said, flogged me is the same as whipping. Um, scourging is old English. Same thing. By the way, chapter 19, which we just entered, is 
a lot of unique stuff that's not in the other three gospels, a lot more Roman soldier abuse. Um, there's no hand washing of Pilate in this. He leaves that out, as I said. Um, let's see. So uh, he's not guilty, and yet they really whip him badly. Um, yeah, they also use this whipping, the middle one, to get confessions out of criminals um, by whipping them until they would talk kind of thing. Um, everybody going to a cross, crucifixion, got the third worst whipping, except women who were crucified and senators. Isn't that interesting? Maybe those are the ones that need the whipping. Okay, did I say that? Sorry. Sorry. Let's move on. Lord, forgive me for that. All right. Um, uh, let's see. We already talked about that. The word, well, no, I'm, I'm going to leave that out for now. Let's keep rolling. So verse two, the soldiers, wait, they already whipped him, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. What's that? Well, the date palm tree that grew in that area had really long, sharp thorns. And if you were going to make a fake crown like a king, you would make it out of thorns and point the thorns upward like a little crown. You with me? They did it the opposite way and stuck them into his scalp and into his forehead, where if you know anything about physiology, one person does here at least, there's a lot of blood vessels up here in the brain. It may not seem like it when I'm teaching, but there's blood flowing. Okay, so they're doing this to humiliate him, but also it's painful, and they put it on his head. Keep your finger here and go to Genesis. Two quick detours. I want to talk about thorns. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree you want in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat from that one tree. Of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that? They disobey in chapter three because Satan convinces them and they eat of the fruit of the tree. God shows up and everything's messed up. Adam and Eve have covered themselves with fig leaves. They're hiding from themselves. They actually hide from God. They're afraid of God now. They know they're naked. Um, let's see. So they pass the buck, and eventually God speaks to the, the devil, the serpent, and Adam and Eve, and hands out punishment for what they each have done. Um, for women, verse 16, I apologize, ladies, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. That's part of the curse because of sin. Does that mean that had Eve and Adam not sinned, that it wouldn't hurt nearly as much to have a baby? I believe it does. I don't understand it. I believe it. Okay. Um, let's see. Verse 17, to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. There's a curse on the planet now. Now everyone's going to die, get sick be injured. There's going to be all kinds of problems on planet earth. You say, where are you going with this, Joe? Through toil, painful toil, you will eat of it. I'm still in verse 17. All the days of your life. It, the ground, verse 18, will produce what? Thorns and thistles. Meaning what? 
Meaning, do you mean that the plants at that time didn't have thorns and thistles? Yes, that's what I mean. All of a sudden, as a curse, thorns, okay? Thorns are emblematic of the curse. Whenever you see a word in the Bible, listen, it's always instructive to go back, use a concordance. Where does the word first appear? The word thorns first appears here in Genesis 3 when God's giving out punishment as a curse for those who have sinned. What's your point, Joe? My point is this. Thorns are a symbol of sin. Jesus, by wearing a crown of thorns, is being depicted as the king, listen, of sin. The king of sinners, the representative of all sinners. Wait, he never sinned. I know. He loved you enough that he's willing to wear that ridiculous crown, which was painful and humiliating because he is taking the place of all human sinners, which is everybody, right? He's taking the crown of thorns as the king of sinners. Now stay in Genesis, go to Genesis chapter 22. Some of you know where I'm going. If At this church, I gave a sermon earlier this year on this very passage. I got to do the really short version. Abraham can't have children. He and Sarah, you remember? Finally, miraculously, God gives them a miracle child named Isaac. Abraham loves Isaac way, 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 way too much. And God says, you love me, don't you? And Abraham says, oh, of course. This is my paraphrase. And God says, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, um, verse two, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering, kill him as a sacrifice to me to show how much you really love me. Ouch. Can't we work something else out? How about two goats, three lambs and a pigeon? No, those things don't matter to you. Take your son, sacrifice him. Abraham goes, he cuts enough wood for the sacrifice, verse 3, goes to the place. By the way, Moriah, I'm trying to do this quickly, is the same region as Golgotha, Calvary. Some scholars think it's the same hill where Jesus ends up dying on the cross. Okay, let's keep rolling. On the third day, verse 4, oh, that's interesting, third day, he sees the place. He tells the servants, stay here. We're going to go up and worship. And then we, the two of us, will come back to you because he's promised to bless the whole world through a seed that goes through Abraham and Isaac. So it's God's problem. He's going to bring him back from the dead if I kill him. Abraham takes the wood, verse six, places it on his son. What's the wood? It's like an altar. It's going to be an altar for sacrifice. Just like God takes the wood of the cross and places it on Jesus's back and they go up a hill. They get up there together. I'm skipping seven and eight. God will provide the lamb when Isaac asks, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? We got everything except the lamb. They get there. Abraham builds the altar, verse nine, ranges the wood, binds his son who's silent, just like Jesus. He reaches out his hand, verse 10. He's about to kill him. God says, wait, verse 11. Now I know. Now I know you really love me and believe in me. You're willing to kill your son. Don't harm the boy. That's verse 11. 
12. But we still need a sacrifice. We're here to worship. Verse 13, Abraham looked up and there caught in a what? Thicket. You know what that is? It's thorns, folks. Again? Yes. Second time it appears in the book of Genesis. What's in the thorns? A ram caught by its horns in thorns. That rhymes. What's your point? My point is the ram is going to take the place of Isaac. The ram, which is a male lamb, lamb of God, is a picture of Christ, who has got thorns stuck where? In his horns, which are where? On his head. Pretty interesting. Go back to John, if you will. Just wanted to do the little thorn thing with you. We still have some time. Let's keep rolling. So in Isaiah 53, which we're going to look at when we meet again, when we get to the crucifixion and Psalm 22, the Messiah is pierced. He's crucified. He's also whipped. He's also mocked, spit upon. Um, that's what some of this is. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him, verse 3, again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They're just mocking him. It's ridiculous because now he's been flogged. He's a bloody mess. And they put on a purple robe on him. Kings, queens, princes wore purple, the royal color right? So to humiliate him, they find some old cloak that's reddish purple, maybe an old soldier's coat, and they mock him. Um, so by saying, hail king of the Jews, there's Jews that are within earshot and can maybe see this. They're also sticking it to the Jews saying, this bloody mess of a guy is your king. And the weird thing is, he is their king, dying for them. So they clothe him in a robe. They uh, ridicule him, hail king of the Jews, and they slap him in the face. Second time he's been slapped. Once more, by the way, in the religious trial, I forgot to mention, um, in Matthew, when he, they say to him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, I am. The priest, the, the high priest tears his robe. What more do we need witnesses? He's guilty. At that point in Matthew 27, the Jews, the Jewish priests and leaders come up to him and just punch him again and again and again in the face. So he's beaten up from that before the whipping, before the crown of thorns. So now Pilate is done. We've got a guy with a crown of thorns. He's all bloody. He's all ripped up. Verse four. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Second time, Pilate has said, he ends up saying it six times. Second time, no basis for a charge. Translation, not guilty. But look how bloody he is. That's what he's saying. Come on, have a little pity. Verse five, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, behold the man. Here is the man, okay? Names, remember we said Bar Abbas, son of the father. Here is the man. In Hebrew, the man is a name. 
Adam. Adam means the man. Here is the ultimate Adam. Adam, the first Adam, failed in a garden, not obeying God regarding a tree. Remember we said that last week? This Adam succeeded the second Adam. He's called in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. Jesus is the second Adam, who has a test in a garden, Gethsemane, regarding obedience to God with a tree, the cross. And he says, not my will, but your will be done. Remember that? He passes the test. Behold, Adam. Behold the man, the man representing all men. He's really saying to them, look how bloody he is. Have a little mercy. Let's let him go. I find no guilt in him, but I, I, I whipped him anyway just to make you people happy. Let's leave this dude alone. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, verse 6, they shouted, yes, that's good enough punishment. We feel sorry for him. Let's let him go. Is that what it says? Crucify him. Crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. Now he's given them not only the ability to try him, he said, I'll even let you guys crucify him. Go ahead. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Gosh, we're out of time, so we're going to have to stop. Um, kind of a bad place to stop, but they want him to die. We'll, <laughs> we'll pick it up in a few weeks when we meet again. I wish we were studying the Christmas story, but it happens we're studying the Easter story, right? And Palm Sunday and all of that. Let's close with prayer in a second here. Um, yeah, that's a tough place to stop, isn't it? Um, so we'll pick it up in a few weeks when we meet again. Let's uh, close with prayer. Have a Merry Christmas. God bless all of you. Thank you for being here all year. I appreciate you more than you know. Um, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you for these lessons, God. Thank you for the love that we see between the lines here that somebody is going through this trial that I should be going through because I'm the one that's guilty. Somebody's going to take the beating and the whipping and the mocking that I deserve. Someone's going to die in my place because he loves me. This is the kind of thing that softens my heart to the point that I want to give him my life and obey him completely. Help us to live behind enemy lines as we are, God, but not like Peter denying you, but standing strong in our faith in your word, never denying either thing. Thank you that you loved us, God, and you sent your son to take our place. And and we see that love and we want to take that love and appreciate it and love him back and then shine that love outward to those around us. Bless each one here, God. I'm thankful for this Bible study and your spirit that leads it. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thanks for being here. And we'll see you in a few weeks and I'll email you to let you know when. God bless you.